people are searching for greatness. Sometimes we're searching for greatness in ourselves, hoping to become great. Sometimes we're searching for greatness in other people. We see this with our kids when they dress up as superheroes and start running the halls in the house. They're saving mommy from the bad guy and their desire for greatness is there. They love this idea of rising up and being somebody worthy, except for the kid who has to be the monster. But the rest of the kids who are running around, they love this idea of becoming great. And this, this doesn't really leave us when we become adults. When we grow up, we have a desire to become great. And so at times we're looking to make a name for ourselves. At times we're looking for a way to generate a following of people that might like us enough that they want to listen to what we have to say. Maybe we achieve a certain degree or attain some kind of high-level job that would really get people thinking, that person, yeah, they're great. And the reality is some people actually succeed. They achieve some level of greatness. To a few. They might be great to a few people and they might be great for a season of time, but no one is great for everybody and for all time. Some of us look for greatness in others. Maybe it's a politician, an athlete, a musician, some entrepreneur who's doing great things, and these great people are great. They're accomplishing awesome things. Yet even these great people aren't great to every person. They certainly don't keep their greatness for very long. We know that. We see them coming up high and then years later they're not even thought of anymore. Their time has come and gone. We're lucky that a majority of people might even agree with us that this person is great. But not everyone will agree with us. When we come to Revelation 5, we get a very different picture of greatness. We see one who is worthy of all worship because he is the greatest. His worthiness doesn't change or waver. It doesn't diminish over time. In fact, it can't even increase because it's already as great as it possibly can be. What's even more is that there's coming a time when every person, every creature will join in a unified worship service to this great one. So the one who deserves worship from all creation does so because he has redeemed people for God by his blood. So my hope this morning is that every one of us will leave Revelation 5 in a chorus of worship to the one who is worthy of all of it. To the one who is truly great and greater than any other. There's three points that are going to break up our passage this morning in Revelation 5. We have the longing for one who is worthy, the presence of one who is worthy, and the worship of the one who is worthy. So beginning here with the longing of, for one who is worthy, we're in chapter 5 and we're seeing this throne in the scroll. Now before we get there, we're brought into the middle of a throne room scene, a future heavenly scene that's going to take place here in chapter 5. Now what's happened is in chapter 4 is the beginning of this heavenly throne room scene. What I want to do this morning is I want to bring us into this passage by reading all of chapter 4. Chapter 4 gives us the, the beautiful imagery of Revelation and brings us into chapter 5 in a really powerful way. And let me just encourage you this morning, in your Bibles, whether you're following along or maybe you're just closing your eyes and just listening, but put yourself in John's shoes. See what's happening in chapter 4 that's setting up the scene for us as we begin in chapter 5. So I'll read the whole chapter, chapter 4, verse 1. 
After this, I looked and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice which I had heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, Come up here and I will show you what must take place after this. At once I was in the spirit and behold, the throne stood in heaven with one seated on the throne. And he who sat there had the appearance of Jasper and Carnelian and around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. Around the throne were 24 thrones and seated on the thrones were 24 elders clothed in white garments with golden crowns on their heads. From the throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder. And before the throne were burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne there, were, there was, as it were, a sea of glass like crystal. And around the throne, on each side of the throne, are four living creatures, full of eyes in front and behind. The first living creature, like a lion. The second living creature, like an ox. The third living creature with the face of a man and the fourth living creature like an eagle in flight. And the four living creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes all around and within. And day and night they never cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. And whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who is seated on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. And they cast their crowns before the throne saying, Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things and by your will they existed and were created. And what a powerful passage. Rich read chapter 5 and here's chapter 4 like leading us into this heavenly throne room scene. I mean, a scene of wonder. We see the, the one on the throne, God the Father, who is holy. He's almighty, everlasting, worthy of everything, creator. And so there's this unceasing worship that's given over to him. So as we come to chapter 5, verse 1, we see this one on the throne. And we see in his hand a scroll. A scroll that is written on both sides. This was a common practice in the ancient days, when a contract was written up on a scroll, they would often place a summary on the outside of the scroll. In fact, we see this in Ezekiel chapter 2, verses 9 and 10. In Ezekiel chapter 2, verses 9 and 10, it says, And when I looked, behold, a scroll of a book was in it, and he spread it before me. And it is writing on the front and on the back, and there were written on it words of lamentation and mourning and woe. And so we see this scroll fulfilled here and this scroll that is in the hand of the one on the throne. But this scroll is sealed with seven seals. And these seven seals demonstrate the importance and level of significance the scroll has. It's likely here that the scroll is containing the plans of God's redemption and future judgment that will come and be unfolded in the book before us. So without this scroll and without one who is worthy to take the scroll, God's plan of redemption and future judgment would not go forth. So here we are in chapter 5, verse 1, and here's this one on the throne holding the scroll in his hand, holding everything, the, the future redemption and judgment that's coming. And then we see this cry of the angel and the cry of John following this in verse 2. So in a place of constant worship, 
where the one on the throne is being worshipped day and night without ceasing, John hears this mighty herald, this mighty angel proclaim this, this question. Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? As the sound of his voice rings out in heaven and on earth and under the earth, it was becoming clear that there was no one who could come and take the scroll. There was no great human figure in the past, no great prophet even like Moses, no angelic being like Gabriel, not even the four living creatures or the 24 elders. None of them were able to come before the throne and take the scroll from the one on the throne. So the shocking realization comes over John with this flood of emotion. And then that translation says he wept bitterly. He was weeping bitterly. Have there been moments in your life when you have been so overcome with anticipation for something? Something that has been building for so long and it's overcome you so much that it just overwhelms you in floods of tears. This sudden flood of emotion breaks over you and it seems as though you can't control yourself because you're so overcome by a decision that was made or an event that took place in your life. This seems to be the reality that John is facing here. A similar one where he's weeping bitter tears as he thinks there's no one worthy in all of God's creation. Yet, think about where John is at. When you see him weeping, we have to remember where he's located. He's in the heavenly throne room, a place of constant worship to the one on the throne. And here's this man who's, who's weeping bitter tears and how much of a contrast that is. It'd be like going to the local library and bawling your eyes out there. Everyone would just look at you like, this is not the place to be bawling your eyes out. This is a place of quiet. But in contrast, here's a place of constant worship. Worship in heaven. And here are these tears flowing down. And as we know through the book of Revelation, these are the only recorded tears we see in heaven. So a major contrast is happening here. John has this deep longing, this deep cry going out because there's no one who is found worthy. But as we will see in just a second, those are premature tears. The full picture hasn't been given yet. So John leads us along in the rest of the vision, bringing fulfillment to the deep longing in his heart which is the fulfillment of the deep longing in each of our hearts as well. So we see the longing for one who is worthy, which leads us to the presence of one who is worthy. John's weeping is confronted in verse 5 with this statement, weep no more. Parents, you know as well as I do, that when your children are sobbing tears of sorrow for something that happened, a toy broke, a simple stop it, will not calm those tears as much as we might try. We need to bring along some reasoning and help them think through it and help them work through the process. And so this angel says, weep no more, but then he says this word, behold. And I love that. Like, don't just stop weeping just because I want you to stop, but behold, there's something greater to look at. There's something greater that will give us hope. So the elder says, weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah the root of David has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. Stop weeping and behold the lion. Now what a scene before us. But there's more here in this picture. Now just think about what's happening. Here's John in this heavenly throne room and he's weeping these tears. 
And they're flooding down, and this elder comes along to him and says, Weep no more. Behold the lion. And then John comes, and he wipes away the tears of his eyes. And he looks up. And look at what he sees in verse 6. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. I mean, what a picture. He's expecting a lion. Behold the lion. And then there's a lamb that is standing. So John sees the lion-like lamb, the one who is worthy to take the scroll, to open its seals. And what I want to do for a moment this morning, which is so important, is for us to unpack what does it mean that Jesus is a lion? What does it mean that he's the lamb? Like, how does this really fulfill itself in Scripture? And how do we see this living out here in Revelation 5? So turn with me to Genesis chapter 49. Genesis 49, 9 and 10 brings us into this first image of Jesus being a lion. Genesis 49, verse 9, begins this way. Judah is a lion's cub. By the way, this is Jacob's pronouncement of blessing on his sons. And he says, Judah is a lion's cub. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He stooped down and he crouched as a lion and as a lioness. Who dares rouse him? The scepter shall not depart from Judah nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until tribute comes to him, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. So here it is, the one who is worthy has been prophesied about thousands of years before. Jacob, as he's talking to his sons, is making this pronouncement of a future hope, someone coming from the Lion of Judah who would become the lion. This is also referred to in Isaiah 11.10 when we think of the descriptors here in this passage of this lion of the root of David, the tribe of Judah, the root of David. And we see in Isaiah 11.10, he's the root of Jesse, Jesse, the father of David. And so John links those together for us and helps us see that here, here is the one who's the fulfillment of the prophecy, the Messiah, the chosen one. This person is the one who's worthy, the lion of Judah, the root of David, the one who everyone has been longing for for thousands and thousands of years. And here he is. Worthy enough to take the scroll. But that's not necessarily what qualifies him to come up to the throne and take it. He is the one who has conquered. Seeing a lion conquer is a scene we can all imagine in our mind's eye. Maybe you've seen a National Geographic special where that lion is roaming and you see a prey, and you see the lion pounce on the prey, and it freaks you out enough that that night as you're locking the house, you just make sure those doors are locked a little bit tighter, just in case that lion from John Ball Zoo came over to your house. And you, you want to be sure because you know that this lion is ferocious. It's, it has power to it. It's something that instills fear in our hearts, genuine fear. So we must never forget that Jesus is this kind of lion, a lion that will bring judgment to his enemies. That will set all things right. The Jews are certainly hoping for this kind of Messiah, but it's not the Messiah who came at first. The Messiah who came first was the lion who conquered through death. This was the lion who conquered through death. And by so doing, he is now worthy to take the scroll and open its seven seals and so fulfill the other side of conquering, which is judgment that will come. 
See, here we have Jesus as the lion, the one who is to be feared, who's powerful, he's ferocious, but he came first as conquering in death. Jesus is a lion, but he's also a lamb. The juxtaposition of these two descriptive terms could not be of greater contrast. I mean, think a lion and then a lamb. Like, there's nothing further from each other, it seems, to be the case. The lion demonstrates good power. We get that fierce and strong. Here's a lamb that's gentle, meek, lowly. This lamb is located, verse 6 says, at the center of the throne room. So you can just imagine again the scene unfolding. You have the throne and you have the four creatures and you have the 24 elders wrapping around the throne. And where is the lamb? But right there in the center, located in the same place as the father to receive all the same honors as the father. The description of this lamb puts our mind's imagination to the test, though. Here we have a lamb who's standing. He's not laying on the ground. He's standing as though slain. So maybe his neck is slit. We don't really know. But here's this slain lamb standing. And it reminds us of the Old Testament sacrificial system, which a lamb was offered for the atonement of sins. And this comes to bear later in Isaiah 53, verse 7. Where it comes to bear on the suffering servant, again, the prophesied one who is coming, who's the fulfillment of this sacrificial system. It says, He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth, like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that is before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. This lamb in the heavenly throne room has offered himself as a sacrifice for all people. That's you and I. And by standing in heaven, we are told that he is not dead, but he is alive. He is not defeated, but he is victorious. So this is no ordinary lamb, a lamb that is victorious, but he also has seven horns and seven eyes. This is really interesting in Revelation. These horns represent the power of the lamb. That there's seven tells us there's perfection or completeness in his power. So here's a lamb that is all power, omnipotent. He is omnipotent, all powerful. The lamb's seven horns have seven eyes. Telling us the lamb is omniscient. He is all-knowing. He can see all. But John unfolds this even more and he says, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. So now we have the Spirit, the Holy Spirit of God is woven into this passage as well. So we see the Father, the Son, the Spirit, all there in the throne room. It's this lion-like lamb that is worthy to take up the scroll. Well, what a picture. Jonathan Edwards makes a, a description and it fills us out some. I want to read this for you as he pulls these two terms together. It says, There is an admirable conjunction of diverse excellencies in Jesus Christ. What a statement. The lion and the lamb. Though very diverse kinds of creatures, yet each have their peculiar excellencies, the lion excels in strength and in the majesty of his appearance and voice, the lamb excels in meekness and patience besides the excellent nature of the creature as good for food 
and yielding that which is fit for our clothing and being suitable to be offered and sacrificed to God. But we see that Christ is in the text compared to both because the diverse excellencies of both wonderfully meet in him. That's our Savior. That's our Savior, the lion-like lamb, both together. If he were just a lion, we would cower in fear of him. We would run away thinking, there's no way I can approach him. If he were just a lamb, we'd say, I don't know if I can turn to him. He seems weak. But this isn't just a lamb or just a lion. It's the lion-like lamb, the one who comes in power and in comfort. The one who comes in meekness and self-sacrifice but who later will bring judgment. We have in Christ both of these together. I mean, this is a beautiful picture for us. So as we draw near to this one, yes, we draw near in fear, but we draw near in comfort too, that this is the one who's given his life for us. So John's longing for a worthy one finds his fulfillment in the lion-like lamb. And it's at this point that the ceremony in heaven really kicks off. And so as we read through this next section, I want to just encourage you to be thinking, how can your hearts be pulled up into worship this morning to our great God? The worship of the one who is worthy begins in verse 7. Let me read verse 7 and 8. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the Lamb each holding a harp and a golden bowl full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. Now it's hard to put to words what this ceremony would have looked like. Again, you have to picture the throne room with the one on the throne and it's surrounded by the four creatures and the 24 elders and the lamb comes to the throne and he receives the scroll because he's worthy. He takes the scroll because he is worthy because of what he's accomplished on the cross. Now, if anyone ever wonders if Jesus is God, this is a clear teller to us that Jesus is God. Jesus is able to receive the authority from the Father. He is able to receive the same worship of the Father. If Jesus were not God, this would be idolatry for them to fall down before him. But Jesus is God. We have the Trinity so clearly communicated here in this passage now, in chapter 4, we're reading about how the four creatures and the 24 elders were falling down before the one on the throne, God the Father. Now here they are turning to the Lamb and they're worshiping Him. And John's going to bring together more and more worshipers of this Lamb. It's a beautiful story or picture of what he's conveying for us here. Let's look together at the song of redemption. Beginning in verse 9 is the song of redemption, the redemptive work of the Lamb. Verse 9 says, Worthy are you to take the scroll. And to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. So here's a song of redemption. Just to be clear, reminds us right away, who is worthy? The lion-like lamb. He is worthy. This lion-like lamb is worthy because he was slain. So before the foundations of the world, God had determined that he would rescue his people, us, from our sin by sending his lamb to bear the punishment for us. He knew full well the extent of our sin. Ever just think about that? Before any of this happened, he knew all 
the sin you and I would ever commit through the entirety of our life. He knew all the sin of the entire world and all the blackness and evil that would dwell in our hearts. He knew all of it. He knew that we would despise and reject him. Yeah, and all of that Jesus is sent from the Father to ransom people for God. He purchased us by his blood. Now the extent of his redemptive work reaches all peoples. I love how this is worded in this text here. Every tribe, language, and people, and nation. It tells us that there is not one person in this world outside of the redemptive work of Christ. This means the 1.3 billion in India are included in this. Every single person in India, every one of the 67 million in Thailand, every one of the 98 million in Vietnam, every one of the 330 million in the United States, every one of them is within the redemptive reach of Christ's work. His blood is sufficient. That's what it's telling us. His blood is sufficient for all people for all time so all people can come to him. The effect here is seen in verse 10. Tells us we have been made a kingdom of priests. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God and they shall reign on the earth. There's this future hope we have and depending on your view of eschatology, this verse could be interpreted differently, but we have this future hope for us. I mean, this is all because of what the Lamb has done. So here's a song of redemption. Then we come to the song of adoration. So this crescendo is building. And this is what I love about this passage is the intensity continues to build from song to song to song. And so we have the 28 voices that are wrapped around the throne. Guess what? Now there's an uncountable number of heavenly hosts that are surrounding that as well. A voice so loud. I can't even imagine what that would sound like. And together they they provide another song to the Lamb. Verse 12, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. Oh, just to imagine those words being sung and said before the lamb, before the throne. The lamb is given four characteristics, which are followed by these three statements of praise. And the way they're structured here is they're tied together as if there's one powerful punch One powerful point of praise and adoration. He has all power. We know that. This lamb is not slain, but he's alive. He's overcome the grave. He has all true wealth, unlike the fleeting version we see in this world we live in. He has all wisdom. Paul talks about that in Colossians 2, verse 3, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge is in Christ. He has it all. He has all might which is further establishes the point of the power and the might of this lamb. So in response to this come these three terms of praise, honor, glory, and blessing. So through all seven of these, we see this one person, this lion-like lamb, is the one who is worthy of all worship. He's worthy of all worship. There's no one found who can supersede his position of worship. The Godhead, they receive it all. So we see this song of adoration. Then we see the song of all creation. The crescendo is finally here. The innumerable, innumerable heavenly host now grows to an even greater number as verse 13 tells us. Listen to these words. 
every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them, every single one of them will join in worship of the Lamb. This goes from the greatest of creatures to the smallest. And not a single one is left outside of those who are bringing worship to the Lamb. Can you just imagine this? I mean, just think about what this would sound like to hear the dolphins in the oceans singing praise to God. What about the lions roaming the fields and the forest, and now they're singing praise to God? What about, what about the birds flying in the sky, and they're flying up above, and they're singing praise and worship to God, or the crickets in the fields, and you just keep going down the list of all of creation, and then you bring all of humanity into that, and all of them collectively in one full voice and worship to God. To the Lamb, this is what they say to the Lamb and to the one on the throne. To him who sits on the throne, verse 13, and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. I mean, it blows my imagination. I mean, this is, this is a scene I can't wait to see unfold. Now, the first two songs we saw in chapter 4 were written to the Father. They were said and sung to the Father. And then here we come to chapter 5, and the first two songs are given over to the Lamb. And now this last and final one, it's given to both of them. Both of them together now receive the worship. This final song brings back some of the same terms we've seen already present. Blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. However, the structure of this particular song is a little different. Instead of a singular punch, like one big chorus of adoration, now they're strung out with more intentionality in each term. You can imagine how a song would be sung and it would be slowing down or building to this point and each term emphasized, telling us, yes, they are worthy of all worship. Yes, they are the ones that receive all blessing, all honor and glory forever and ever. So the culmination of all of this tells us that these in the throne room are the ones who are deserving the highest level of worship. The one on the throne, the sovereign one over all creation, the one who has willingly sent his son, the lion, the lamb, the one who's redeemed us, these are the ones who are worthy. As they finish the ceremony of worship, the four living creatures say, Amen. May it be so. And the elders fall down and they worship. And what it what a powerful scene for us this morning. Revelation 5 leaves us in a place of certainty about the one who is worthy of all worship. We know for sure who the greatest one is. No one else in all of history has redeemed mankind. No one else is deserving of all worship and praise except for the lion-like lamb and the one on the throne. But I want to encourage you this morning with something. Our worship of the lion-like lamb is not just a future event. It's not just something we're looking forward to participating in, but it's something that should take place today. It's something that should take place tomorrow in our lives. So here's some applicational thoughts for us as we think about giving all worth and worship to the lion-like lamb. Worship the lion-like lamb by coming to him. I mean, just think of the beauty of this scene. Jesus 
is seen as the lamb in Revelation and all of eternity future. We see him there as the one who's gentle and meek. We see him there because of his love and self-sacrifice. He is ready to receive us and to become our sacrifice so that we can enjoy him forever and ever and ever. In his role as a lion, we see him as the one who will hand out judgment on those who reject him. Without question, God's desire is that all men should repent and turn to him, but some will not. Some will reject him, and they will face the wrath of the lion. So here's my encouragement this morning. If you've never come to the land to be purchased by his blood, I plead with you this morning, come to the lamb. Come and worship him and embrace him as the lamb that was slain for you. Turn to him for the forgiveness of your sins. And then stand with us in the song of worship to our great Savior. If you're struggling this morning with sin, I plead with you as well, come to the Lamb. Come and worship him and embrace him as the Lamb that was slain for you. The one who is eternally bearing the scars of his death. A reminder that he already paid the price. Come before him and be reminded that yes, he redeemed you, but he's also calling you then to live your life in worship to him. Maybe this morning you're struggling with the assurance of your salvation. Oh, I plead with you to come. Come to the lamb. Come to the lamb who is not on the ground bleeding out, but the lamb who is standing in victory. Like it has been paid for. The price has been been given. Christ's blood has been shed and now he's in victory and so turn to him for the assurance of your salvation. The, the lamb has done it for you. Worship the lamb by coming to him. Worship the lamb like lamb in all of life. So we know that ascribing worth to Jesus is not just this future event. It's a daily thing that we can be participating in and I love how Romans 12 unfolds this for us. A familiar verse, Romans 12.1 I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. This means that our worship of the Lamb is not just reserved for the future. Our worship of the Lamb happens in the mundane of our life. Our worship of the Lamb happens in the midst of trials and in the struggles we go through. We worship the Lamb in all of our life. And we can, as it were, offer ourselves up on the altar as a sweet-smelling aroma to the one who deserves all worship. Are you willing to worship the Lamb in all of your life? Husbands, worship the Lamb this week. Worship the Lamb as you love and care for your wife. Like you're called to worship the Lamb and how you treat them and how you talk to them and how you care for them. Worship the lamb and how you care for your kids. Worship the lamb by how you work and how you spend your money. Worship the lamb in your heart and in your minds. Worship the lamb in all parts of your life. It's not just reserved for the future, but it's for today. Like, are you going to worship the lamb? Are you going to lead your families in a way where they say, yes, we want to worship the lamb too because he's worthy of all worship. Wives, worship the lamb as you follow your husband's leadership. 
Worship the lamb as you care for and nurture your kids. Worship the lamb in the mundane things of life, whether it's work or at home, whatever it is, worship the lamb. And all of those things say, yes, I want to worship him in the little things and in the big things. Widows and widowers and singles, worship the lamb. By the way, use your energy, time, and talent, the things that God has given to you in the season of life. Worship the lamb with every little piece of it. Young adults and teens, worship the lamb with the ambitions of your heart. Worship the lamb with your decisions about careers and spouses and friends and schools. Worship the lamb in every part of it. So for every one of us in all of life, let's worship the lamb because he's worthy of all worship. Worship the lion like lamb in all of life. Worship the lion like lamb by following him. The lamb's path was one of joy, but also suffering. It was one that required him to endure the cross and its shame so that he could purchase people from every tribe, language, people, and nation. Mark chapter 8 says this. Jesus is speaking to his disciples If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. We see here the lamb that was slain for us so that he could bring all people in worship to himself, the person worthy of all that worship. So are we going to follow this lamb? Are we going to follow this lamb on this path and be willing to to live our lives in such a way that we are aspiring to bring other people around and worship the Lamb too? Are you willing to sacrifice all so that the Lamb can be worshipped in the way that he so deserves? The lion-like Lamb is worthy of all worship. And because of this, the greatest ambition of our hearts can be only to say, Lord, we want to bring others to worship him too. And so we go to people and we tell them, here's the lion-like lamb who's worthy of all worship. Let me tell you who he is because this is the greatest thing we could ever do with our lives. Are you willing to worship the lion-like lamb by following him? There is only one who is worthy of all worship, the lion-like lamb. Let's join this morning in a chorus of praise and worship of him because he alone deserves it. Father, we're so thankful